tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Monday, March 21st, 2022. This is episode number 240. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, AKA Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, this show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 28,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about a banking reform push before the midterms, streamlining the Illinois program, a study on the risks of cannabis in mood and anxiety disorders, cannabis shops and security, Alabama wants women in the medical cannabis program to show a negative pregnancy test, a 15-year-old girl strip-searched in the UK as in hundreds protest, a free Britney G update, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What you got today, Rico? I got a little Monday morning spice for everybody here, man. So this one's actually coming from The Hill. Um, and it is Cannabis Industry Goes All In on Banking Push Before Midterms by Carl Evers Hillstrom. The cannabis industry is pushing the lawmakers to get a marijuana reform bill to President Biden's desk before November midterms. Last week, in what The Hill describes as an in-person lobbying blitz, 20 MSO CEOs urged urged, uh, lawmakers of both parties to pass the Safe Banking Act confident the measure will win enough GOP support to pass the Senate. The U.S. Cannabis Council organized the fly-in where big weed CEOs met with 60 congressional offices. In the meetings, they also pushed the lawmakers to modify a section of the tax code preventing cannabis businesses from taking tax deductions, which is believed to have less support than safe. Cure Leaf CEO John Barron is quoted saying, 
there's a, certainly momentum building around trying to get something done this year in the Senate on both the Republican and Democratic side. We're seeing consensus for safe banking and as being a piece of legislation that could pass. As we all know, leading seven Democrats have been pushing for a more comprehensive bill to decriminalize adult use and expunge past convictions. It is something that I and many others who actually care about the community and see the bigger picture as to how black and brown neighborhoods are targeted outside the cannabis industry and our systemically racist financial industry agree with. Just a reminder, just last week, Bloomberg reported Wells Fargo rejected half its black applicants in, mortgage in the mortgage refinancing boom. The highlighted story in the piece circled around a banking giant rejecting the application of Microsoft engineer Maurice Ricard's refinance application, even though he has a credit score north of 800. Y'all don't want to hear that, though and would rather put a Band-Aid on a knife wound. So let me continue. MSO's, MSO heads are stressing for an all-encompassing decrim bill that would not, or are stressing that uh, all-encompassing decrim bill would not receive the 60 votes needed to get through the 50-50 split Senate. Standard Wellness CEO Jared Malouf chipped in with, we want comprehensive reform, but we also recognize that with the, uh, with the potential for the House and the Senate to change hands, we have an opportunity now to pass impactful legislation. And if we fail to do that, it could be years until we get something done. A wise man once said in the great 80s film noir classic, Coming to, a, to, come into America. Exactly. Let those motherfuckers wait. This piece goes on to repeat the same arguments for safe banking, and they have merit. Yes, it would enable legal operators to use banking services and credit cards. Yes, if, if passed, uh, that it passed the House six times in recent years with support of Democrats on board, along with 106 Republicans when it passed last year as a standalone bill. But per the article, Senate Democrats have expressed concern if safe banking passes, Congress will consider its work on the issue done and pass up on a key opportunity to enact a more extensive bill, which we all know is true, given Republicans are most likely to take over and they don't give a fuck about your feelings. They don't even acknowledge the existence of, of systemic racism. Shit, it took these motherfuckers 100 years and 200 failed attempts to pass the Emmett Till anti-lynching bill, which finally got through two weeks ago. Let's not be naive on what's really going on here. I'm not a Chuck Schumer fan at all, but this is a hill worth dying on, and I'm actually glad he's standing his ground here. The Democratic leader is quoted in the article saying, if we let this bill out, it will, it will make it much harder to take longer and take longer to pass comprehensive reform. His own bill, the Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act, would remove cannabis from the federal controlled substance list, expunge nonviolent federal marijuana convictions, and direct tax proceeds of legal sales to communities that hit that were hit the hardest by the racist and illegal war on drugs. The bill could could and should go a lot farther, but that should be enough to com uh, compromise if y'all want to do the incremental thing, which is also bullshit. But hey, two-party system, congressional gridlock, racist-ass filibuster, still alive, all of that, whatever. DPA fought to have safe banking removed from the defense spending package last year and told followers not to prioritize banking, profits, and big business before long overdue equity and justice for people being harmed by marijuana criminalization. During last week's meetings, it was suggested safe could be lumped into um, criminal justice and uh, social equity reforms, highlighting HOPE Act uh, that had launched a grant program to expedite expungements. But big wig bosses say if criminal justice reforms are not passed, safe banking should be prioritized as a step forward for justice, leading to further uh, reforms in the future. I know Jason Beck and Gretchen Gailey are going to say what they say supporting this bullshit, but as a black man with great credit who's personally been discriminated on by big banks trying to get a home loan, 
by a finance industry I was a leader in and was made a mascot by managerial peers and by someone who took a major cannabis company public only to be offered another near entry level position afterward, followed um, by being accused of selling cocaine to gain popularity in a region they couldn't gain traction in. I say fuck safe banking. Past comprehensive reform. This is Rico Lamite, dopest dad on the street, reporting for State of Cannabis News Hour. Love to hear y'all thoughts. Well, Rico, if you want to die on the hill, you will die on this hill because a comprehensive reform is not coming this year. Uh, I mean, to say that it doesn't have the 60 votes, it doesn't have the 50 votes. It doesn't have even the Democrats on board with comprehensive reform. It's not going to go anywhere. So you would like to continue to let over 40,000 BIPOC businesses keep sitting there without access to banking, keep letting it be a dangerous place. And I'm sorry, but they are going to get safe banking passed if they're also able to attach the HOPE Act, which they are trying to do. And frankly, the HOPE Act is going to do a shit ton more for this industry than any bullshit that Chuck Schumer is putting forward. Chuck Schumer is looking for expenditures for, uh, on the federal level, which might benefit around five people. The HOPE Act addresses it on the state level. That's where the real reform is needed when it comes to criminal expungements. What the HOPE Act will do is allow people for free to get their, uh, their criminal records expunged on the state level. Um, and that's actually going to bring some hope and change to this industry. No, not the bullshit no, no, that no, Chuck no, Schumer no. is going for the money, going, going for the and money first. He's not going to do anything. Into what people are trying to do and actually can achieve, you might see a little hope for this industry. These motherfuckers already have the money. Let them. They already have the fucking money. I'm not. Take care of people on the on the street. Take care of the people who have been hurt by the war on exactly. drugs first. Exactly, and that's that. what this is going to do. But if you keep going with Chuck Schumer's plan, nothing is going to happen. Let them wait. Pass safe banking. Up next, we've got Shalina Panu. She's an attorney at law focusing on cannabis, entertainment, and psychedelics. Founder of the cannabis blog and podcast, Shall We Toke? What have you got today, Shalina? Thank you so much, Susan. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is, Should Cannabis Content Creators Use Their Own Social Media App? Whether you have 1,000 or 500,000 followers, people in the cannabis space have been flagged, reported, and or banned for their cannabis content in the last few years. Now cannabis content creators in this space are finally taking a stand against social media giants such as Instagram, who deactivate their accounts after being reported for their posted content. According to Forbes, cannabis creators believe that their competitors are hitting the report button on their post to Instagram in hopes of them being shut down. What's funny is you don't even have to be selling a competitive product. Simply having the hundreds of thousands of followers in the cannabis space puts a target on your back in an industry that is still in its infancy. Although it's legal in some states, cannabis is still federally illegal, thus creating huge barriers in the digital arena. Apps like TikTok have outright banned any sort of content that has to do with cannabis. I myself was flagged several times on TikTok for posting cannabis content. Instagram, on the other hand, although they sometimes won't immediately take the post down, they will likely shadow ban you, making it hard to gain any sort of organic reach to an audience. This can massively affect your business in a very subtle yet dramatic way. You think you're making a huge reach, but in actuality, you're being shadow banned and don't even realize it until you actually look at your numbers. The only ones really flying under the radar are the big corporate companies who have the capital behind them. So the question is, should cannabis creators create their own platform? A few years back, WeTube was created by Aren Richards for all cannabis YouTubers who have been banned from YouTube. Aren has recently started a petition for Instagram to lighten up on its regulations toward the cannabis industry. Instagram has already begun deleting posts regarding this petition. 
More recently, Cookies founder Burner and CEO of Wood, uh, Weed Maps, Chris Beal, have created a cannabis-friendly social media platform called Social Club. Weed Maps themselves have been shut down several times on Instagram, along with the hashtag Weed Maps being banned as well. They decided to create Social Clubs specifically for cannabis growers, businesses, consumers, and more. Social Club's purpose is to establish a social media platform for people in the cannabis space to post freely without the fear of repercussions one would face on apps like Instagram or TikTok. It will launch in Q2 of this year and will be available only to those 21 and over. On the upside, there is a possible way to use Instagram to your advantage without being banned. Rolling Stone states that video marketing for cannabis companies is highly underutilized. A fantastic way to normalize cannabis on social media is by creating short videos of personal life stories one has. For example, in February 2021, Jungle Boy shot an incredible Instagram video showing one of the founders pulling up to his Jungle Boy's headquarters in modern day while showing flashbacks of his gruesome struggle as a cannabis grower in the legacy market. The video captivates everything from him growing cannabis in his closet as a youth to hiding stacks of cash inside buckets buried in the ground. Further, it shows him being jumped, violently attacked, arrested, and more, all within the belief of this plant. Artistically speaking, it was very raw and extremely impactful. It allowed the consumer to understand what it actually took for this legacy brand to be what it is now. As can be seen, it did not come into existence without a challenging fight. Providing a raw, behind-the-scenes experience like Jungle Boys did could greatly improve your SEO, increase your conversion rate, and solidify your brand loyalty. Have you been personally affected by a social media ban for cannabis content? My name is Shlena, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis NewsHour. This is one of the reasons I went all in on Clubhouse and because I saw Clubhouse as a cannabis-friendly space. And we successfully uh, lobbied the leadership of Clubhouse to get uh, cannabis and weed and, and marijuana as topics um, in Clubhouse. I, what my, my question is, uh, do, do you think, I mean, it's a limited market. It's just cannabis folks. Do you think weed maps and high times can have uh, successful uh, social media platforms? I, the reason, one of the reasons I, another reason I like Clubhouse is because we're pulling in people that aren't just here for cannabis. I think weed maps can be a lot more successful than high times at this point. Um, no disrespect to the uh, the goat publication of our industry. I think Weed Maps has a much broader reach. They've got more money, and they can actually partner with a lot of mainstream um, uh, platforms to do it right, do it the right way. I was pitched. Um, uh, I saw the pitch deck for Emerald Emerald Road. I think it is. Yeah, Emerald Road, and it's kind of a precursor to a metaverse um, application. It. It's really quite interesting. Yeah, it's really, really cool to see uh, Weed Maps uh, sponsoring pretty much everything in the cannabis lane at South by Southwest last week. And um, after a conversation with Chris uh, Beals over there, like they really are going uh, ten toes deep and in, in really trying to mainstream everything the cannabis industry wants to do uh, in America. So I can see some solutions on the way and possibly some partnerships with um Instagram and Facebook uh, right around the corner because they're trying to uh, find their way as well. I think they're just trying to block out other everybody else before they get their shit together. I think we're at the end of time for that story. Um, our next correspondent is the CEO of award-winning and original Breeders League, MJ BizCon's 2021 Golden Bond Influencer of the Year and universally recognized as one of the dopest mamas on the planet. Y'all know who's coming to the stage next? Priscilla Agoncilla. What you got for us this morning? He. Happy Monday. 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Rico. Uh, today, I'm reporting on some horrific news from across the pond. Thousands take part in a protest in support of a a black girl, 15, strip searched at school. Thousands of people protested on Sunday in support of a teenager who was strip searched at her school while menstruating by Metropolitan Police officers. The protest was held at Hackney Square after the 15-year-old, aka Child Q, was wrongly accused of having cannabis on her at school. Officers were called by teachers who said that they were concerned that the teenager had drugs in her possession because she smelled like cannabis. The traumatic search took place on December 3rd without another adult present outside of the cops and in the knowledge that she was menstruating. So in her strip search, she was forced to remove her period pad by the police officers that were called to the school. The girl's intimate body parts were exposed and she was made to take off her sanitary napkin. No drugs were found and she was then sent home by taxi. The controversial search has resulted in both her school and the Metropolitan Police facing a furious backlash from the public at it was as it was believed to be racially motivated. Many uh, were saying that if Child Q was a different race, there's no way she would have been searched like that. Signs of protesters displayed hands off our daughters and let black girls just be girls. Investigators concluded that the impact on the girl was profound and the repercussions were obvious and ongoing. Family members described her as changing from happy-go-lucky to timid recluse that hardly speaks and now self-harms and needs therapy. Her family is looking to sue the police and the school. This story is infuriating and truly tragic. It's yet another disgusting reminder that racism is still alive and that we all still have so much work to do to make it safer for our kids, our future. As a mother, I would want to burn all those involved and responsible to the ground and sprinkle their ashes in my blunt. This is Priscilla reporting for the SOC NewsHour. We should have had a, a trigger warning for this article. This is so awful. What about the children? Oh, my God. Give me a fucking break. This is ridiculous. Unreal. As a, as a unreal. Thank you for sharing the story, but unreal. Sorry, Rico. No, no, you're good, brother. You're good, man. As a father of a of, of a black girl, man, like, I'm sorry, I would, I would, I'd fucking shoot this school up. Fuck that. Fuck these people. Fuck the racism. Fuck all that, man. This is this is rough. It's tough to even hear that. It's, it's fucking it's, horrific. It's it's unfortunate that when people see black and brown people, especially black people, they don't see us as humans. They see us as animals, less than. They'll treat their pet better than they treat us. So I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised by this. This happens all the time. This is just getting some news coverage. You, you know, black kids are treated differently than white kids. So it's, it's, it, it needs to change for sure. And I'm glad that they're making a hell of a noise about this because this happens every day in America, every day. Priscilla, did the school give any reasons for their actions? They just uh, they just thought that she smelled like cannabis, so they immediately called uh, the Metropolitan Police. Um, it was women, uh, two police officers that did search her. They were women. Uh, she said that she was on her, you know, her period. They didn't care. They wanted to check everywhere. It, I mean. Come on, give me a break. This is disgusting. She should have. She. They should have had her parent there. Uh, I mean, you know, some sort of guardian called to the school. They sent her home in a fucking taxi. 
No, not that. There are so many failures here, and uh, what I don't want to hear from the from the police department is that they're gonna use this, you know, to get better. And no, they need to get they need to get fired uh, at a and they, at a very oh, they need, need to be sued and sued. Yeah, uh, and, and yeah. they absolutely should sue. Absolutely, yeah. That, yeah, horrible, horrible failures all across and the this board. This is the here. thing about smoke, secondhand smoke. It can cling to you. I, I've had patients come into my office reeking of cigarette smoke that makes my eyes water. And I asked them, please do not come back to my office smelling like smoke. And and it'll be like I wasn't smoking. My husband was smoking or someone else was smoking. So it's not always the person smoking that smells like smoke. So you have to be very careful about that. This poor girl was very um, active and happy and outgoing and now she's an introvert and she's self-harming and 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 women have ptsd three times more than men because of the pa patriarchal racist world we live in i, mean, I want to agree with dr sorry i want to agree with dr felicia because i know especially down here in carpinteria where a lot of children have people family who work in the cannabis industry i mean you can't be judging on smell no, they went about it wrong. Um, obviously, they issued a blanket apology, and they uh, respond. The the Met Police said that they're going to start an investigation, but no one's been fired. No one's even been put on, you know, probation. Like nothing. No one's been. Uh, it, there's nothing that's happening unless and they the, sue. And this child will never be the same. True. And another reason we need to root out systemic racism before we pass any fucking banking bills. Sorry, y'all. All right. We're at the end of the, um, the time for that story. Um, man, up next, coming to the stage is a true Renaissance woman known for br uh, bringing the data, not the drama. An educator, brand strategist, healthcare consultant, and founder of the Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara County. Coming up next, it's Liz Rogan. What you got for us, Liz? Thank you, Rico. Greetings, everybody. Thanks for joining us on this uh, lovely Monday. My story today comes from CNN Health. It's by Sandy Lamont. The headline reads, Study Raises Questions About Risks of Using Medical Marijuana for Mood and Anxiety Disorders. So a recently published study released in JAMA, which is the Journal of the American Medical Association, titled The Effect of Medical Marijuana Cart Ownership on Pain, Insomnia, and Affective Disorder Symptoms, published by Jody Gilman, uh, sorry, by Gilman, Schuster, Potter, et al., raises some questions about potential risks of medical cannabis use. The study asked the question, what are the risks and benefits of obtaining a medical marijuana card for adults who seek medical marijuana for pain, insomnia, anxiety, or depressive symptoms. So the, um, sorry, the study's objective was to evaluate the effect of obtaining a medical marijuana card on target clinical and cannabis use disorder symptoms in adults focusing on chronic pain, insomnia, impression, anxiety, and depression. So in this randomized clinical trial involving 186 participants, immediate acquisition of a can medical cannabis card increased the incidence and severity of cannabis use disorder and resulted in no significant improvement in pain, anxiety, or depressive symptoms, but improved self-reported sleep, sleep quality. So findings from this study suggest the need for further investigation into the benefits of medical cannabis for insomnia and the risk of cannabis use disorder, particularly for those with anxiety or depression. Despite legalization and the increased use of cannabis nationwide, there really is a lack of strong clinical literature to support the risks and benefits. 
Um, this was a single site, single blind randomized clinical trial. It was done in the greater Boston area from July uh, 2017 to July 2020. They looked at adults from 18 to 65. The chief concern was pain, insomnia, anxiety, or depression. The immediate, the group who got the immediate cards, they were allowed to get the card immediately. There was another group that had to wait 12 weeks before obtaining their card. So the participants could choose the cannabis products from wherever they want, and they could continue using medical and psychiatric care, the normal things they had. So the primary outcomes were the changes in cannabis use disorder symptoms, um, anxiety, depression, pain severity, and, and insomnia during the trial. So it was 186 participants. Average age was 37. Women, there was 122 women out of that. So compared with the delayed card group, the immediate group did have more uh, symptoms. And so basically, um, this showed that there's a lot more research that needs to be done. Further investigation for the benefits of insomnia and the risk of cannabis use disorder are needed, particularly for individuals with anxiety or depression systems, symptoms. So you can find out more at trial uh, registration at clinicaltrials.gov. This is pretty interesting data. I personally would love to hear what the medical professionals and everyone else thinks about this. So this is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour from Santa Barbara, California. I have I haven't um, read the study exactly, but for me it seems like yes, definitely more research is needed. Um, we always try to to treat people. You very you very rarely see people develop cannabis use disorder when they're under medical supervision. Uh, because we don't try to go for the highest THC percentage. We, we're, you're looking at all of the cannabinoids and terpenes working together to try to get the relief at the lowest possible dose. Uh, there's anecdotal evidence out there that the higher the THC content is, the more difficult it is to stop using cannabis or um, tolerance develops more quickly. So it's important to take a 48-hour break to let your receptors uh, readjust so you, you can use the lowest amount of TAC uh, to get you feeling more comfortable or more like yourself. Uh, Dr. Felicia, thank you. I'm glad you uh, were able to speak first on this because you're always so eloquent on the subject of these studies. Uh, Liz, I, I read the study, as a matter of fact, because I was actually hoping to report on it, but then I saw that you had gotten it first, so um, you did a great job. The things that I learned when I read the study were, um, I, I thought, really interesting. Uh, I thought it was um, remarkable that a, a study, quote-unquote study, by Harvard and Journal of American Medical Association included only 184 people as such a small group. But more importantly, um, number one, the, the people in the study uh, self-reported on their issues, right? They self-reported when they came in. They weren't tested, they weren't treated, they weren't uh, diagnosed by doctors. They self-reported that they had chronic pain, insomnia, anxiety, or depression. And then when it was shown through the study that they didn't have any result from cannabis, the report said that, they, that cannabis didn't help them. Well, who's to say that they correctly uh, diagnosed themselves? Uh, and why wouldn't the doctors validate their, um, their assumptions? Uh, in, in any normal study, you would think that the medical professionals would be leading the diagnosis. Uh, the second thing was that I, I noticed was that um, the participants from both use could, could choose their cannabis products, dose, and frequency of use, and also they could uh, get input from licensed medical dispensaries or elsewhere. So there was no control over the medication either. 
Not only was there no control over what the patients actually had, what their problems actually were, but there was no control over how the patients actually used cannabis at the end. And then, therefore, what the study proved was that people who were given a medical card were more likely to get cannabis use disorder than people who were not given a card. Well, no kidding, right? Because the people who got the card and were able to use cannabis are then, you know, statistically likely of a certain percentage to get uh, cannabis, develop cannabis use disorder. So this study proves absolutely nothing in my mind. I can't believe that Harvard has put their name on it. I can't believe the Journal of American Medical Association has put their name on it. I, I think it's absolutely nothing here. Dr. Mary Clifton here. I agree with you completely. 184 people obtained from 2017 to 2020. That's a long period, and you should have been able to at that point have identified a couple thousand, especially with those names and that money behind the study. And, you know, they, they were wildly biased in the way that they came to their conclusions. But interestingly, they reported cannabis use disorder at a rate of 50% which, in, as Dr. Felicia has noted, this is a, something that we might see if cannabis use disorder is even real. You know, you might see it at 9%. But, I mean, the argument that people return to a product repeatedly is probably because the product works. I mean, we could argue that most of my patients that I used to treat with antidepressants when I had an office practice, 100% of them had a use disorder because every single one of them took their medication every day so that they would avoid the side effects of not being on the medication, not only the depression coming back, but also the tremor and the, and the foggy thinking. So, I mean, <laughs> to suggest a 50% cannabis use disorder, this is just biased crap. It's total bullshit. Can someone please define cannabis use disorder? Because to me, all it sounds like is reefer madness fucking propaganda. Uh, Bingo. Bingo. I mean, if you look at the DSM-3R, it's going to talk about somebody who's repeatedly returning and using in an excessive way to where the use might be changing their personality or their behavior. I mean, it's easy It's easy to Google, but then there's a number of people within the community that would raise some real questions about whether cannabis use disorder even exists, including me. I mean, I certainly see some people who behave in an addictive pattern after using cannabis, but they're not, you know, uh, they're not looking like like uh, like uh, fentanyl those, addicts th at Those all. are more people, Dr. Mary, those are more people that just suffer from oral fixations. You can be addicted to anything. You can be addicted to anything. So mm -hmm. why not cannabis? So, but it's it's certainly not fifty percent. It's like nine. It is like nine percent. And Christopher, I could have not done a better job in assessing that study. But the, asking about why would somebody an institution put their name on a thing? Why would something show up in a particular journal? There's a lot of infiltration into medical journals where studies are being written, composed by industry, mm -hmm. and then. They asked some some high-ranking doctor to put their name on the, on the research when they didn't even do the research. So there's a lot of shenanigans going on in the medical community, in our medical journals, in our medical institutions that the, the lay public is not aware of. So you, you have to follow the dollars. Yeah, this feels like it is part of a coordinated effort to create what appears to be a credible paper trail that cannabis is not clearly safe. But I would ask all of our correspondents that we have on today, do you know anybody who has cannabis use disorder or suffers from it? Because I'm a pretty seasoned user, and I don't know a single person that has had cannabis use disorder or presently suffers from it. 
Exactly. And what's the deal with the 12-week delay for some cards? I mean, they were actually testing a whole bunch of different things in one really poorly designed study. It's, I don't know. This is variable. It's unbelievable. This, this piece right? has Project Sam's fingerprints written all over it. It really in my does. It really, I agree. Thank Jason. you, guys. Thank you all for all of your comments on this. I really appreciate you, Christopher, bringing that up. It was also reported over the phone, and a lot of people who had to wait for the 12-week thing actually dropped out. So really appreciate your guys' analysis on this. I know that we're over time, though, so I want to be cognizant of everyone's uh, so we get all these great stories in. Yes. I mean, if you're taking cannabis medicinally, aren't you supposed to take your medicine every day? It's pretty ridiculous. But we are going to relight the room. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. He's the cannabis industry's longest continuously running retailer and holder of two PhDs with a Z in bro science. He enjoys the finer things in life like mink coats, private jets, triggering the libs, smoking the world's best weed, and of course identifying and eradicating the world of universally condemned boof. Coming to the stage next is Jason Beck. What you got for us today, man? Oh, yeah. Good morning, Rico. Happy Monday, everybody. Hope everyone is having a fantastic day today. My story today comes out of Illinois, where the S's will not be silenced because you can't silence people if you silence the letter S. And Illinois' pot program pitfalls. Despite a downstate judge allowing Illinois to award 60 new business licenses for growing cannabis after a recent three-month pause, dispensary licenses are still being held up by the courts. Why this matters? Well, when pot was legalized in 2019, Governor Pritzker and the state legislature boasted that they had the most socially equitable legal cannabis program in the country. But many of those promises were never delivered. There are almost no minority-owned business dispensaries. Owners out, out of the 110 retail licenses uh, that currently operate in Illinois. Um, the program that the governor modified in 2021 to get more minority-owned businesses in the mix has been held up by the courts. And also, too, there was hope Springfield would open up a more even open up even more dispensary licenses this spring session, but instead a bill is moving forward that would give protections to cannabis users in the workplace. And then in driving news, the state introduced a new application system last week for the 55 dispensary licenses that will be given out in 2022. What they're saying, once heralded as as the leader in social equity, or excuse me, as what it truly is, is socialist equity. Poor planning and management has allowed Illinois' cannabis industry to be captured by billion-dollar corporations, while states like Ohio and Massachusetts have quietly supported substantially more diverse and local cannabis businesses. Well, this is another epic failure of socialist equity when lawmakers think that they have something good and they'll want to boast about it for the community, but ultimately do what they do, is, which is epically fail. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Illinois keeps on trying and trying and trying and failing and failing and failing. Democratic leadership, Rico. It truly is socialist equity, Jason. Great call. What else would you all rather call it, and how can we make it work? I think maybe it'll get pushed through uh, 
in both chambers of every single state if you call it corporate equity. Maybe oh, yeah, work. yeah, that's it, that's it. Come on, come on, Rico, you know you wanted to just be called reparations. I just want everybody to ball the fuck out. If that's socialism, if, if, if that's communism, if that's whatever the, the fuck you want to call it, it's um, called, give it's everybody called, a it's called capitalism because uh, those other market spaces you you talked about, no one balls out except for the fucking higher ups. How about equal chance to ball out, not just a select few? Yeah, just call it capitalism. <laughs> Let the cream rise to the Cap- top, Rico. Yeah, capitalism where the uh, CEOs make a bazillion times more than the workers. That's something a little off with that. That's model. how they pay to employ all those workers, Dr. Felicia. Let's call it capped capitalism. How about that? No cap capitalism. And that's why you got to work two to three jobs just to make it. You got to work no jobs to take it, though. There you go. That is technically a job, Rico, when you take that shit. (laughs) I'm not going to go further. I'm not going to go further. All right, so uh, we're at the end of time for that story. Up next, she's a feisty redheaded conservative with Mayflower roots, never backing down from a good... Good debate with cannabis-loving peers across the aisle. Coming to stage next, the founder of Panoptic Strategies and our very own Washington insider, and a star supporter of safe banking, Gretchen Gailey. What you got for us today? Uh, well, my headline today is not exactly a headline. It's more of a statement uh, that is coming uh, from the Cannabis Caucus co-chairs, uh, which are David Joyce, Earl Blumenauer, and uh, Barbara Lee. Um, they have put out this statement honoring um, their fellow uh, past uh, cannabis co-chair, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Don Young, Representative Don Young, if you're unaware, uh, he was the oldest member of the House and the Senate. Uh, he was 88 years old, uh, and he uh, represented the wonderful state of Alaska, and he passed away um, on Friday on his way home back to his, uh, his district. Um, and here's a statement from the Cannabis Caucus co-chairs. Don was a fierce advocate for ending the failed federal prohibition of cannabis. He was dedicated to ensuring Alaskans and all Americans had the opportunity for a better life, not just for today, but also for tomorrow and the future. It was with that dedication that he helped found this caucus and created a forum where any and all members could engage, discuss, and learn about the need to establish a more rational approach to federal cannabis policy. As the four of us work together across party lines to advance this important issue, we watched it gain more momentum with the American people than ever before. Don's legacy of bipartisanship is the foundation on which we will continue to build the consensus necessary to enact impactful reform that will address our outdated federal cannabis laws. He was a legendary leader, not only in this space, but on any priority of the Alaskan people. He was a historic lawmaker whose legislative accomplishments are sure to go down in history, and he was our friend. We feel his loss deeply, and our thoughts are with his wife, his children, and his staff. Um, this, I would say, is a huge loss uh, to the cannabis community. Um, I realize many of you probably don't know who he is or you know, that he was a Republican, uh, but that he had great support for this industry, and he pushed forward a lot for veterans, uh, him being a veteran himself. Um, and he will be sorely missed uh, when it comes to arguing um, from the right and for everyone uh, for cannabis rights. Discretion for State of Campus News Hour. R.I.P. I couldn't agree with you more, Gretchen. This is a hundred percent a great loss, um, not just for for America, but also just for our industry overall. He was a true patriot, and we've had the I've had the chance to work with him as well as his office on different pieces. And he was he was he was definitely a, a strong leader uh, and a 
good backer for cannabis reform. The the cannabis caucus is a bipartisan group, but it is far outweighed on on the Democratic side than on the Republican side. Um, so we need to get more Republican members in there into the caucus um, to fill his uh, fill his seat. And I don't know, perhaps maybe Nancy Mace will step up because there's not that many other uh, majorly vocal uh, Republicans out there on this issue. We do need someone to step in and try and take over, which is going to be a tall, tall order to fill. And end of the time for that story. Up next, he's hailing straight out of what many call the longest of all beaches here in California. He's the CEO of Fruit Slabs, a cannabis and intellectual property attorney, and his beard is known for slapping up fools who talk shit about the industry, his favorite music acts, and also Fruit Slabs. Coming to the stage next, Brandon Dorsky. What you got for us, my man? Uh, thank you for having me today and that wonderful intro. My headline comes from MJ Biz Daily and Michael Sassano. It's 2022 could be the year for pharmaceutical marijuana. It's mostly a projection that 2022 is going to be a big year for pharmaceutical cannabis. And that's piggybacking off of 2021, where there were some major pharma moves uh, that the article highlighted. Several of them were Jazz Pharmaceuticals' acquisition of GW Pharma for $7.2 billion, Pfizer's deal with Arena Pharmaceuticals for $6.7 billion, Teva Pharmaceuticals' preliminary distro deal with Israel's Canbit Tikum Olam, and Dermapharm Holdings' purchase of Canopy Growth's cannabinoid subsidiary C3, as well as the Tilray Afria merger. The article acknowledged that there were some non-pharma deals as well, uh, but that those non-pharma deals have been historically overvalued, and it was really the pharmaceutical buyouts that were the cannabis flex in 2021. Sasano also acknowledged that there were big pivots by recreational operators towards pharmaceutical cannabis usage, including Cureleaf's purchase of EMAC Life Sciences and the Clever Leaves SPAC. Uh, Sasano also pointed out big alcohol and big tobaccos moves, Constellation's brand's involvement with Canopy Growth, Molson Coors move into CBD, Pabst Blue Ribbon's THC-infused seltzers, and several others, and then went back to talking about why he believes pharma is poised for a big year in, in 2022. You noted the United Nations voted to reclassify cannabis in 2020, and that pharma usage is a primary driver of the legalization in Europe. He really feels or believes that Europe is poised to show major gains and advancement in pharmaceutical cannabis, and that, that will tip the scales in the marketplace. Uh, the article also acknowledged that uh, U.S. and Canada currently account for 80% of the global recreational market for cannabis. A lot of stats, not too much other meat on the bone here, but pay attention to 2022 because apparently some industry pundits are calling it the, the year of pharmaceutical cannabis. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Farmers always been involved in the cannabis market. They, you just can't tell. Even in the 1800s, 1900s, bazillion pharma, pharmaceutical companies were uh, selling cannabis-containing medications here in America. Eli Lilly went so far as to grow their own cannabis to create medicines when um, World War I blocked shipping lanes. So big pharma's always had their hand in cannabis one way or another, and it's not going to be any different once it gets relegalized, hopefully one day. I couldn't agree uh, uh, more with this, even the title of this article, Brandon. Uh, I think at the end of the last year, Pfizer um, jumping in with that $6.7 billion 
deal to buy Arena Pharmaceuticals was just the beginning. I think we're going to see a whole lot more of this, um, and especially as we inch towards federal legalization. Um, just look at the numbers, man. Pfizer already has, a th I think it's a third of uh, all the patents in the industry. Follow the money. Yeah, and I think the, you know, at least the recent changes that are opening up uh, some avenues for there to be more reliable studies and studies that actually use today's cannabis rather than the crap that GW Pharma had for Mississippi or wherever it comes from. I think that being permissible in the United States is going to lead to medical, some more research, but also that will then fuel at least American pharma businesses getting more involved in the space. Then we have the word medical in there, and that's the whole thing. Obviously, it has many, many medicinal benefits, but I think that throws the big monkey wrench in there. I think and it gains respect, too. Go well, ahead, Griffin, sorry. I think if we're going to get a big push from pharma, um, I think uh, Rico and supporters of the CAOC are definitely going to see themselves left behind because these boys have the money to lobby uh, to get the legislation that they want passed to make legalization work for them. Uh, so this could be a, a very scary thing for the industry, not Come just on the medical now. side, but looking at the whole picture, these boys are going to get what they want. They're going to get interstate commerce. They're going to get what they need to push their medications. And they are not going to give a damn about social equity. I love the shots fired, but don't call them my boys. They're Socialist my boys. equity. <laughs> Wouldn't be shocked if there's interstate commerce for pharmaceutical cannabis and not for recreational cannabis. They got Boo! the dollars. Not shocking at all to see them trying Techn to pass a medical cannabis nationally and not uh, adult use. There already I is. I think that's something you'll see coming. There already is interstate commerce for, for medical cannabis that's from the federal government because the federal government has been sh shipping joints to the nine federal patients for years, and I think there's probably only like four or five of them that are left alive still that still receive a can of joints every month from the federal government delivered by the United States Postal Office of Boofass Weed from the University of Mississippi. Exactly. We're going post. Don't be surprised if America goes postal with boof, but you can only still get your good weed on the corner. Ooh, coin that shit, Mr. IP lawyer. All right, then. T-shirt, T-shirt. All right, we're at, the, we're at the end of time for that story. Up next is a communication strategist and publisher of the American Cannabis Report. But if you look up in the sky, it ain't a bird or a plane. It's Christopher Smith, the man with the most passionate delivery in the cannabis news game, just a wee bit higher than you. Christopher, what kind of news are you smoking on today? <laughs> what a great intro, Rico. Thank you so much. And good morning, Susan. Uh, my story today comes from Marijuana Moment. Ann Arbor could decriminalize drugs with student-led effort. So a student-led student group has launched a campaign to decriminalize drug possession and low-level distribution in Ann Arbor, Michigan, home of the University of uh, Michigan and their Wolverines. After months of consultation with members of the community, the University of Michigan chapter of Students for Sensible Drug Policy has drafted the Ann Arbor Resolution to Advance Sensible Drug Policy. So the resolution, uh, which is available online, is uh, about one page of statements about the failure of the war on drugs and four pages of resolutions that the city council should undertake immediately. Uh, Got to hand it to the kids are driving the conversation in a new and sensible direction. The three big 
big ideas contained in the student's resolution are a shift needs to be made from law enforcement of drugs toward healthcare-based solutions, such as been successfully instituted in Portugal and more recently in Oregon, where it got 58% of the vote and it's supported by the majority of voters in the United States. Uh, number two, the group's consultations with various community stakeholders led to a suggested permitted threshold of 15 grams of any drug. And uh, number three, to shift the possession, the possession of drugs to the lowest priority for law enforcement. Uh, it would ban the use of city resources to criminalize possession and use of drugs and do the same for distribution of drugs in quantities below that 15 gram uh, threshold while acknowledging that the federal and state drug laws would still apply on paper. And the kids are putting out an aggressive agenda uh, and timetable to get stuff done. They, they're demanding that the uh, Ann Arbor City Council convene a working group comprised of people who use drugs, community justice advocates, public health professionals, students, and representatives from municipal departments to determine the most sensible path going forward. Um, but interestingly, um, acting in accordance with public health approach to substance use, police department personnel and prosecutors should not hold seats on the working group, but may be consulted by working group members regarding the implementation of the resolution. So I think it's pretty ballsy to kick law enforcement off the curb like this. Um, we've seen what happens when they're involved. There's years of squabbling about traffic incidents and public safety. They're not borne out by facts. They want to protect their power and authority and their budgets. But that, but that battle is not likely to end soon. I think it's also interesting that um, it may sound ambitious for a city to push for drug, enforce, uh, drug reform, but remember that in the U.S., the states are 25 year, years ahead of the federal government, and that this resolution is simply pushing a city it, ahead of its state. Detroit and Seattle have already done similar steps, and so has Ann Arbor, in fact, in 2020. The city voted to make antheogens, including psilocybin, peyote, ibogaine, the lowest law enforcement priority. And now the city has a uh, yearly uh, event called the Entheofest. So the last word is that State Senator Jeff Irwin supports the initiative. He says, I'm proud to join SSDP in their campaign to decriminalize drug possession in Ann Arbor. The war on drugs has been a complete failure. Addiction is a health issue, not a crime. We need to focus on treatment and rehabilitation. Go Wolverines. Yes, Go Chris. Yes, yes. I got to talk a little shit because um, I went to Northwestern and, and Michigan is the only team that we didn't beat when I was playing there. But um, it's a good story, you know. We've got Troy up from the audience. Troy, did you want to weigh in on Christopher's story? Yes, thank you very much, uh, Susan and panel. Um, I think this is tremendous because one of the problems I think uh, – that's not being said is that everybody's speaking for patients, but the patients aren't sitting on the board or things of that nature. Everybody's speaking for the patients. So for the patients or patient foundations to be represented and spoken to before things are put together is tremendous. Mary, you've got the final word. <laughs> well, you know, I'm from Michigan and I'm a uh, Spartan from Michigan State, but I raised two Wolverines. And the, uh, the hash bash has been a huge event that's gone on in Ann Arbor, I mean, for my entire lifetime. They've always been so supportive, very early and strong supporters of cannabis. And you could only get fined, I think, five bucks if they caught you with a bag of weed in the city limits. So they were very supportive all along. And the Green Wolverines are almost certainly behind this. They're the business uh, community at, at Ann Arbor. 
Um, I've gone and uh, spoken at a couple of their events. They're well organized. I mean, if you're looking for an intern or if you need somebody to uh, employ, the, the reach out to the Green Wolverines. Those kids are sincerely really high quality individuals headed into the cannabis industry. I thought the term green Wolverine would be oxymoron and <laughs> how they feel about the Spartans. Another story for another day. So up next, <laughs> it's obvious there's some national friction going on between Americans and police officers. Some say defund, others want reform. But our next correspondent took a different route. She chose to leave the force, become a cannabis cons security consultant for CC Security Solutions, and join our team reading the damn weed news. We salute you, brother. Up next, Chris Eggers. What you got for us, my man? Rico, your, your intros are absolute fire. Thank you. Happy Monday to everybody. Uh, my article today comes out of Renton, Washington. Uh, a lot of activity up, up there and elsewhere. Um, my headline reads, Cannabis shops increasingly opt for armed private security to protect themselves. So again, out of Renton, Washington, a cannabis shop uh, was looking to hire private armed security to further protect its business and customers uh, after weeks of uh, armed robberies at its marijuana store location. This trend has been increasing in the Seattle area. I've reported on it before. Uh, others have as well. Uh, and it's been well documented in local media. So this particular article talks about Buddy's Cannabis, which is located at 420 Sunset Boulevard in Renton. They had hired armed private armed security because they were robbed in December and in January. Uh, an increasingly um, well-documented crime, obviously, that we, we are experiencing in the cannabis industry for a very long time has not let up and, and is becoming increasingly violent. Uh, the owner, Miles Kahn, said there have been a huge uptick in robberies in the cannabis world. Kahn's business, which is about to celebrate its sixth anniversary next month uh, of opening, is very popular among customers in the, in the area and in recent years has won Best Cannabis uh, category for the Best Renton Awards. Um, but in recent incidences, these have really alarmed Khan and his staff to the point where they are taking action to go above beyond what they were doing before, which they had in-house security, and now they're hiring private security that is armed. Um, he's also quoted in the article as saying, we have our own internal security armed previously, and it is not; it has been enough. But when we see guys rushing in with semi-auto we weapons, not much you can do. Khan spoke about how cannabis shops are forced to be cash only, as we know, uh, making them more vulnerable compared to other retail locations of, of other business kinds. Uh, as licensed business, Khan said that he is required per state law to post signs that as business that says no firearms are allowed inside. Um, and he's further quoted saying that it's, so that's almost like invitation to these people who have ill intentions. Um, we're very attractive to the wrong type. So Khan said that security is now obviously a big part of his ongoing budget line item and his significant expense. Uh, and uptick to other businesses, he is unable to write off various expenses, unlike other retail locations of other kinds. Uh, we can't even deduct it from our taxes because it's federally illegal business. We cannot deduct our normal business expenses, Khan said. Um, I wanted to share this article because it brings up a couple interesting points about safety and security and where people are looking. Um, clearly, we can see that you know law enforcement alone is not the answer to this problem. Um, they are not well-versed or, or have the bandwidth to solve this problem, leaving operators to look for other, other ways to uh, protect their people, first and foremost, and their assets. But I encourage anybody listening to uh, make sure that you listen or look at your insurance policy. Um, it is very common that people will file an insurance claim expecting to get 100% reimbursement for some sort of loss, but the insurance companies may point to an exclusion 
within your policy that would bring your claim down to zero. So prior to making that decision, which is you know one way to go, uh, I encourage people listening to really look at your insurance policy and make sure that you're covered there as well. What you don't want to do is you know incur this expense, uh, hope for a result that may or may not happen if an incident then does happen and then find out the hard way that your insurance claim is zero. Uh, leaving you an even tougher spot. Uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to share this article today, thank you for allowing me to share. Happy Monday. Uh, love you guys. Um, really great to be here and hope everyone has a great week. My name is Chris Eggers and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Great story, Chris. Y'all got to strap up, protect your assets. We are uh, almost at time strap there. Up. Strap up. <laughs> We're almost at time there. So uh, bringing us home, she's the Plants uh, for Life CEO, dual board certified physician, well known for helping folks understand and manifest immense innate powers over their personal health by using cannabis as it was intended as medicine. Dr. Felicia Dawson, what you got for us this morning? Thank you so much, Rico. Happy Monday, everyone. Um, basically, Alabama passed a very limited medical cannabis bill law last year. Everyone's not happy with it. Senator Larry Stutz, a Republican, has filed an amendment to limit pregnant women's access to the plant. His legislation would have you present with a verified, verifiable uh, negative pregnancy test to the dispensary with done within 48 hours before you are allowed to be sold cannabis. If you become pregnant, you must also report to the qualifying um, provider who gave you your cannabis card and let them know so that you cannot use cannabis. And to my understanding, also they want to prohibit uh, breastfeeding as well. Uh, Emma Roth, a staff attorney at National Advocates for Pregnant Women, and my apologies, my headline comes from Marijuana uh, Moment, Alabama bill would force women who want medical uh, cannabis to uh, show a pre negative pregnancy test. Um, she states that this amendment would violate women's right to privacy and equal protection under the 14th Amendment. It's another attempt to police pregnancy in the name of the fetus when med medical marijuana poses no harm, greater harm than any other common exposures during pregnancy, Roth said, and where would the state's reach end? Would a negative pregnancy test be required to be around smokers, to drink coffee, to work in a factory, etc. Roth also st uh, mentions a 2020 study that shows that cannabis exposure alone does not cause significant cognitive function functioning impairment. Uh, Dr. Stutz, or, or Senator Stutz, is a doctor. He is an obstetrician gynecologist. So, Dr. Stutz, what you're doing with this amendment is pushing pregnant women back into the legacy market, or at the least, you're creating more hardship for them. Instead of tax breaks for the rich and dragging women and people of color back to the 1800s, how about we put that energy into supporting pregnant women and funding meaningful cannabis and pregnancy research with the whole plant delivered in a safe manner? If we can research and mandate the COVID vaccine in pregnant women and their unborn children, surely we can research a plant that's been used safely for thousands of years by women and their providers. I'm Dr. Felicia Dawson reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour.
Thank you so much. That was a really great take on that article. Please uh, follow the link and read it. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay on Clubhouse or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day just to bring us what just what we need to know. A big thank you for uh, to Rico for co producing the show and to our pinup girl Liz Rogan thank you audience for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city county state or country your addition to our show makes the state of cannabis news hour news you can trust you've been tuned in to the state of cannabis news hour where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Goodbye, Rico.